This is Veterans Voices, Memories and Stories of Minnesota's World War II Veterans. I'm Kevin Berger. I guess World War II was an event that no American could really opt out of. They were either, you know, people who were called into service themselves, their families, people that had the, the stars hanging in their windows. A lot of businesses got involved in the war effort. People went to work for them. And then just average citizens grew their victory gardens or they had ration coupons that affected what they could purchase. Everybody believed everything had to go for the service. Everything had to go for the soldiers. So there were lots of changes for Americans, but there was something that happened toward the end of the war that really created a change that we still live with. And it really rewove the the fabric of our society in ways that we're still benefiting from. The House, within the last hour, passed the so-called G.I. Bill of Rights with enough amendments and additions so that its own mother wouldn't know it. The vote was 387 to nothing. Don't you love those uh, radio newscasts from, well, that one was from 1944, the way they announced it. And they that announcement was what is officially known as the Servicemen's Readjustment Act. But, of course, we call it the GI Bill. And that passed before the war even ended. Uh, at the time, the Congress and uh, FDR, they knew that one of the forces that was blamed for the Great Depression was all those servicemen who came back from World War One. The economy couldn't absorb them. So here came 16 million servicemen and women. They are going to be heading home as the war wrapped up. And so they said, well, how do we keep them busy and off the job market? What's the smart move there? So they came up with the GI Bill. And among other things, that gave veterans preferential hiring. That's something that still exists. And, of course, the VA loans, housing loans, which veterans still take advantage of. But the the game changer and the centerpiece of that bill was a free ride to go to school, to get paid to get an education. Veterans administration offices have been set up in every state. And it's here the ex-soldier goes if he wants to continue his education under the GI Bill of Rights. So there were military films at the time that they played for the returning servicemen and women to explain how the GI Bill was going to work for them. Now you're getting the idea. Any kind of education and in any part of the country, high school, trade school, college, university, tuition is taken care of, funds are provided for laboratory fees, books, supplies, and equipment are included. The education was up to the individual veteran. Some wanted to retrain. Some wanted to go to vocational training uh, to learn a trade. Some had never finished high school. Uh, And then there was the opportunity to go to college. The idea of going to college was really not in their heads at the time they went marching off to war, or, or their parents, for that matter that uh, the dream at that time was to get a high school education. A veteran can go to school from one to four years. And if the ex-soldier has already completed college and wants to take a postgraduate course, 
such as law, there's nothing to stop him. Turns out a lot more people were interested in education than the authors of the GI Bill had ever imagined. Uh, Ten times more took advantage of it than they had anticipated when they put together that legislation. So there was a great hunger among Americans for more education. And there's one theory about this is a lot of the people who fought and won World War II had really maybe never been outside the state where they were born. It was, we were not a well-traveled people at that time, but they'd gotten on ships and planes and they'd seen the world in the, in the you know, from North Africa to the European theater, Pacific theater. And they came back different and maybe with a different view of the world. It shook up their idea of what was possible and what they might want. And education was the door to that. The administration at the University of Minnesota was really out front with this. The U wound up with 25,000 veterans uh, through the World War II GI Bill, more than any other you know, public research land-grant university. And the, the administrators, they set up veterans clubs on the Minneapolis and the St. Paul campuses to sort of orient them. They had offices to advise and counsel them. Now, these were not the typical college students in, uh, from the past. These were grown men and women who had been around the world, who were tough, who were tempered, who had seen war. So it was a different kind of student, and they were in a hurry to get to work and get on with it. The U put up temporary buildings. They added night classes. The class sizes got bigger. Housing was really tight. They had doubled up dorms, and there were bunks on the lower level of the old Memorial Stadium. That's gone now, but they they were stacking them in there. And then they had trailers and Quonset huts and metal barracks that they threw up in a hurry for the married students. There were a number of uh, married students who already were starting their families. Those were the baby baby boomers, and they created a university village so that they could have their families together. The government was very good to the soldiers. I don't think they're that good to the soldiers today. Private First Class Sherman Guerin was one of the GIs who was able to take advantage of the GI Bill at the U. They gave me my entire college education. They paid for my books. They paid for the college. And they gave me $75 a month to live on while I was in college. He grew up in Duluth. His father was a Russian refugee, his parents, and they started a a knitting mill there. Uh, It was a family business. And when Sherm was 19, he went off and and fought in Europe. Uh, You're going to hear a little more about that coming up. But he came back and had the chance to uh, do the GI Bill, and he was excited about it. The government was terrific. I had enough time for four years in college. I had been in business school and I had credits uh, so that uh, when I went to the University of Minnesota, they told me that I had enough credits that if I spent uh, 12 months more, four quarters, I could get a degree in business. So I got the degree in business uh, and got got my law degree, passed the bar, uh, but my father had a business that I had worked in all my life and I was getting married to my wife. And I figured to, to starve, as my dad said, 
you want to starve as a lawyer, come in business. So I went into, in, into business. He told me about finding a, a very nice room in a boarding house, short walk to the U, seven bucks a month, which was a, a good price for the time. He uh, remembers walking through Kaufman Union and grabbing a cheese and tomato sandwich. But he was a busy guy. He was one of those students that, that wasn't the typical teenager. He had fought on the front lines in France. So he was in a hurry. He already, while he was a student, he was calling on accounts for the family business, that knitting mill in Duluth. And by the time he was done at the U, he had a hundred accounts that he was working with. At the time, about 5% of all Americans had a college degree. Again, the dream prior to World War II was to get a high school education. But the people who did have college degrees, they were almost exclusively affluent families, children of privilege. People like Sherm Guerin did not necessarily have an expectation of college and would not have accessed that kind of education. And college really wouldn't have been in the cards either. For another veteran, I want to tell you about her name was Jean Goldoff Biermann. For me, it was a really valuable uh, choice to have made. It changed my life. And Jeannie, as she was always known, was born to a working-class family in New York, and she would have loved to have continued her education after high school. But that just really was not uh, a realistic expectation for a girl like Jeannie, no matter how bright she was. However, when the war started... She saw an opportunity and she seized it. She was very patriotic. She wanted to serve her country, but she also had it in her head that that this could be an avenue for her to to get more from this world. It gave me opportunities that I would not otherwise have had. It was a, a socially acceptable way to leave home without having to because you got married or because you were having a baby and were thrown out whatever. Um, And I think I was ready to leave home and ready for uh, the adventure, the opportunities to maybe travel, certainly to learn some skills that I would find really useful and people that I would not otherwise have met, experiences I wouldn't have otherwise had. Jeannie enlisted in what they called then the Women's Army Corps, the WAX, and she wound up serving in London, and she was, I think, pretty good at her job. She rose to the rank of captain. She was a personnel officer, and she was in London while the Nazi bombs were falling there. But during her service, she had also met and fell in love with a sailor from Minnesota, and he also turned out to be her fate. I came home uh, and got married and moved from Brooklyn to Minnesota, where my husband uh, lived and was finishing his last year at law school when he came back from service. So we were both GIs. We were married in June, and uh, I started uh, at the university here in Minnesota in September, and 
Uh, I'd been out of school about nine, ten years. I loved being back in a academic community. At the time, they they called them G.I. Janes when Jeannie came to the U. It was a rarity for uh, there to be a a woman veteran and then one who accessed the G.I. Bill. And Jeannie stood out here in Minnesota in a number of ways. That I was a woman, that I was Jewish, that I came from New York, uh, was challenging to be in Minnesota. Well, because of the GI Bill, students like Jeannie were able to access education. Now, these were many of them the offspring of immigrants, working class parents, but because they were able to get their vocational training and learn a trade, go to college, get their education, in some cases, you know, get advanced degrees, this opened up the middle class to a lot of people who otherwise would have continued perhaps as their parents did. So America had this great newly educated workforce, and those people became the engine. We had this surging post-war economy. The U.S. was the envy of the world, and it was really driven by this group of former servicemen and women. Uh, It changed them. It changed our society, changed the kind of citizens they were, and for their children and grandchildren, it changed the expectation. Jeannie Bearman had four children, and she said that there was no doubt she was a different kind of a parent than she would have been if she wouldn't have had her education. She loved college so much that after she earned her bachelor's degree, she went on with her education and got an advanced degree and had a very satisfying career as a therapist. And all of that, I think, was enriching and good for me. And... um and that it afforded the GI Bill was uh, so important to me. Uh, I had, um, like it was something I had to do, was to go on to school. The GI Bill of Rights is not a reward or a handout or a gravy train, but rather an American way to make it easier for each man to take his place once again in the community and get some of those things for which he went to war. A job, a business, an education, a home. There's another clip from one of those films, and it was really part of the government's push to say this is not a handout, that these are our patriotic Americans who are back. And it was exactly to explain how a veteran like Sherman Guerin what experiences he had that earned him this extraordinary new benefit. Now, keep in mind, he was barely in his 20s when he faced the daily duties of uniform on the ground uh, in a dangerous place with American forces. You've heard about the Battle of the Bulge. Well, we weren't in it, but we were on the edge of it. And they did push us back also. And an interesting thing about it is to see how you're immune to uh, what's going on, is that I was in a, um, a small vehicle with another person. We were driving down the road. The shells were going overhead, and we didn't even bother to get out of the thing. We just kept on driving. It didn't even bother us that the shells were going. That's how immune you get to, to what's happening in combat there. 
Garin's family were Russian Jews, and they became proud Americans. But in the lead-up to the war, they and other Jewish Americans, they followed the news from Europe, and uh, Sherm was talking about how scared they were when they heard about what Hitler was up to. That fear then followed him to his assignment in France. Uh, Because I'm Jewish, that's another uh, factor. I had nightmares about being captured by the Germans while I was in combat. He admitted he was terrified of what might happen if he would fall into enemy hands because of his religion. So Sherm was also fluent in Yiddish, and that turned out to be pretty valuable while he was serving. Uh, Combined with his high school French, Yiddish allowed him to have value, and his commanding officer used him sometimes as an interpreter. Uh, the front line at that point was still about 300 miles north of us. So uh, to get to the front line, we, we went on, on a train. And I doubt whether you've ever heard of this, but the 40 and 8, a 40 and 8 is a train, um, uh, a train compartment uh, that can either hold uh, eight horses or 40 people. Well, we were 40 people. <laughs> so we were on this train, and there was a city right next to it, maybe about uh, a mile or two away from us. So I said, well, I've got, uh, I've got my French. Uh, we'll go into the city, and we'll buy some food. So what I was looking for was bread. And are you familiar with France, France at all, or French? Mm-hmm. Okay. I've been to Paris. Okay. Do you know what bread is in French? Pain. Pain. Mm-hmm. And you know what the is? La. La pen. Mm-hmm. So we go into the city, and I see, some, I see someone in the city, and I say, eh, where is la pen, the, the bread? And so I say, oh, yeah. They point me to a butcher shop. Uh, rabbit is lapin. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, our, our people got uh, rabbit stew. <laughs> on the train. He had another uh, interesting story, very memorable to him, when his high school French came in handy. He was traveling from Marseille to the front. But Yiddish is really German. And um, part of what, in combat, we were in the area called Alsace-Lorraine. That's part, that's really part Germany and part France. It's, an, it's, it's It was owned by France, but the the people were, had both German and France. Our cannon were shooting alongside their homes and the walls were cracking. And the people were saying, what are you doing? And I said, I'm sorry, we're, we have to fight the enemy. And I was talking in French to these people that we have to fight the enemy and I'm sorry we're doing this, but it's something that has to be done. Well, now we go into Alsace-Lorraine and when I'm speaking to the people, I'm speaking half in French and half in Yiddish because they can understand that because they've got the German background. That's the voice of Sherman Guerin. The interviews with him and Jeannie Behrman were conducted in the year 2014. One year later, Private First Class Guerin died at age 91, and Captain Behrman died in 2016 at age 95. Veterans Voices is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, and with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, 
online at minnesotavets.org. <laughs>